This is Solve It for Kids. Hello, my amazing and curious friends. My name is Jennifer, the Dean of All Things STEM and STEAM, and this is Solve It for Kids, the podcast that gives kids and families a peek inside the real world of scientists, engineers, and experts as they solve problems in their jobs using creativity, cooperation, and critical thinking. And now please welcome to the show my podcast partner, Galactic Space Geek, Jeff Ganya. Hello, Jennifer, and hello, listeners. For as big and expansive as space is, with today's episode, we are going the other way. Ooh, this sounds very cool. What problem are we solving today? How do humans and robots feel? How do humans and robots feel? I sense this is going to be a great episode. Who is our guest today, Jeff? Our guest today is the very smart Dr. Darren Lapomi. He is professor of nanoengineering at the Jacobs School of Engineering at UC San Diego. And he is also a fellow podcaster with Molecular Podcasting. Welcome to the show, Dr. Darren. Thanks, it's great to be here. Well, we are excited to have you. And I'm just gonna jump right in because I have an idea what nanoengineering is, but I'm not sure that our listeners do. Could you kind of explain that to us? What is nanoengineering? Nanoengineering is the study and application of materials that have nanoscale dimensions. And a nanometer is one billionth of a meter. So anything with one of its dimensions from one billionth of a meter to 100 billionths of a meter is within our expertise. So like really, really, really small. Really small. (laughs) We're we're talking like a millionth of width of a human hair. Oh my gosh. And you do engineering with this. Yeah, we we synthesize materials, we look at them under microscopes, we make solar cells and prosthetic devices out of them. It's all all fair game. Okay, and we need to talk more about that. I've never heard the parameters that you just gave of say 1 1 billionth to 100 billionths. When it gets a little bit bigger than you, than those parameters, what does it then become? That's a good question. So some people will criticize nanoengineering as being something that the microelectronics industry has already been doing. So if you open up your computer and you look at that, the smallest possible size, the transistors are about seven nanometers across, but they call that microfabrication. But we say, well, nanomaterials actually have different properties from conventional materials. So it seems that it's more appropriate to start talking about this very small scale world in terms of nano instead of micro, because it's something different. Yeah. Okay. It's very cool. I did a book on nanotechnology a few years ago, so I'm sure probably everything I learned back then is all completely different. The applications are different. But can you explain that how on the nanoscale things appear different and act differently than in like regular, what we think of as normal scale type things? 
There are a lot of properties that change when you shrink stuff down. So a gold particle that's a millimeter across right. or an inch across, it looks gold. But when you shrink it down to less than 50 nanometers, maybe down to five or 10 nanometers, it's red. You put it in a solution and wow. it's red and it interacts really? with light in a very different way. Usually nanoscale materials have most of their atoms on the outside or close to the outside right. because when you shrink something down, its surface area gets bigger mm -hmm. while its volume gets smaller by comparison. So with all those surface atoms, they tend to melt sooner because they're not connected to as many atoms. Right. And so, right. so you get melting point depression and things like that. It's so cool working with materials <laughs> like that, I think. Okay, we're going to jump right back into that. However, I do have to ask, when you started learning about engineering back in your school days and college days, did you know you wanted to do nano? Or was there something about it that just grabbed your interest and you've stuck with it since? There were a couple of different things. I think that one of the things that I always wanted to do is work on the energy challenge. I was always okay. interested in efficiency and green chemistry and green right. engineering. And as okay. an undergraduate, I had a project at Boston University on running a bunch of different molecules through what's called a reaction column that had nanomaterials in it. And out pops a very sophisticated molecule that was made of those three different components that wow. you put in. And because of that, it's very efficient. There was very little wasted solvent, very little wasted energy. Wow. And that was an example of a green synthesis. And I wanted to do something with nano because of its application in the energy sector. I love wow. how you were able to figure out that you wanted to do that from doing that one project. A lot of times, you know, you do a project, you hand it in. And as a student, you're just like, whew, that one's done. Okay, what's <laughs> next? And we don't really take anything from it. And it sounds like you took a whole lot from it. Yeah. Sure. Like the history of organic chemistry is making pharmaceutical compounds, right. making sure. polymers and paints and plastics and stuff. And the connection as a 19 year old wasn't clear to me that an organic chemist could contribute to the energy challenge. And then that project okay. opened up this whole world wow. that said, indeed, my skills are applicable here. That's awesome. And that's something we've heard from other guests on our show is just kind of keep your eyes open because sometimes you'll end up learning something while you're doing it that might take you in a completely different path, which is what this one did. But now I'm curious how you got from energy to what we're kind of talking about today, which is, you know, the sense of touch. How did you make that leap? Yeah. So a professor at a university like me gets to pick a core scientific problem. And this is how you look smart in front of your, <laughs> in front of your highfalutin faculty colleagues who, who write you recommendation letters. And this is how you get grants. But then with this one core scientific area, what you do is you look for places to apply it things that excite oh. you. So my core scientific area is 
organic nanostructures. So materials based on carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen, like the honk elements, and (laughs) that have nanoscale dimensions. And there are three application areas we explore in my lab. One is is solar energy. The second is mechanical wearable biosensors. And the third is the newest area, which is what we're going to talk about today, which is how to use these organic nanomaterials to understand the way that we feel objects in the natural world. Oh my gosh. I could talk about any of these. They all sound amazing, don't they, Jeff? We're going to have to have Dr. Darren back two more times. <laughs> I think so. Today we're talking all about the touch. So now that we know that we're talking about the area of human touch, tell us a little bit more about that. How is nanotechnology yeah. a part of that? Right. Anytime you interact with an object, you are feeling organic structures. So let me. I'm keeping up so far. (laughs) I'll I'll propose an experiment to your listeners. So you look around the room, and if you're indoors, you'll see paint. You'll see your carpet that is made of polypropylene, the paint is made of latex. Even your glasses are made of polycarbonate. Yeah. Uh, your, and even something like metal, like you hold up a spoon, and although it looks like it's stainless steel and covered in chromium and totally inorganic, right? right. It actually is still covered with organic stuff that adsorb to it from the atmosphere. So any object you touch anywhere in life, even the surface of the ocean, is covered in organic nanomaterials. And when I looked at the existing ways in which we use technology to interface with the sense of touch, I thought of the Apple Watch, smartphones, laptop touchpads, and they do things like press into the skin and they're pretty cool, but they can't do everything, right? right? And in order to mimic everything that we find in real life, we need to be able to control organic materials at the nanoscale. Okay. To do what with them? This is where I'm curious. Like, what are you going to do if you learn how to control this? What are we going to learn from that? So if you could make organic structures that could alter their tactile properties in real time, what you could do is generate the absolute most realistic surgical simulation. You could do physical therapy in a way that was never possible before. You could do remote repairs for machines that land on the moon or Mars. You could interact with objects remotely through virtual and augmented reality. You can can understand individuals with neurological disorders that arise from defects in their peripheral nervous system. That is the part of the nervous system that encompasses the sense of touch. Wow. I was going to say, our mouths are on the floor. Are they not, Jeff? This sounds so cool. Well, when, when you asked about what he was using it for, My first thought was obviously, I'm not at Dr. Darren's level or anywhere close. My first thought was, oh, it sounds like he could make the sides of my cell phone a little more tactile, so I would (laughs) drop it less. And Dr. Darren and his lab and students are actually solving world problems, not not fixing clumsy Mr. Jeff. (laughs) So, okay, I need you to keep going. 
how do you go about doing that with yeah. your students and in your lab? Are you just touching stuff all, <laughs> all over day. the place in your lab? And you're like, all right, Billy, what did you feel over there? <laughs> there are a few different threads to this research, a few different, okay. you know, pegs, yeah. legs of the stool. Right. One of them is synthesis, a synthesis and design of new materials. So there are certain types of materials that will respond to a stimulus. And we call these stimuli responsive materials. Okay. And, and there are things like silicone rubber that you can put certain kinds of molecular groups in that will respond to light. And they'll oh. change their properties of tack and adhesion and even thermal conductivity, which gives you the impression when you sit down on like wet grass that it's wet because yes. it pulls the heat away from your bottom. If you can change these properties through molecular design and change the properties in real time using a stimulus, then that's how we can tune the properties. So that's like one peg of the stool. Another one I'll give you as an example is psychophysics. So psycho, psychophysics, it's not like a crazy physics professor. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a branch of psychology that we have collaborators in the psychology department here and at other universities that help us design experiments where human subjects can handle the materials that we make in the lab and learn about the properties that give rise to certain sensations that are registered or felt by the user. And because we controlled the material, we know what we did to that material to make it feel that way. Okay, so the way this works would be, say you have a subject who's participating in your experiment. So you might have them touch something and then change it slightly, right? With whatever stimulus you're using. And then all of a sudden it's softer or stickier or I don't know, smoother, something like that. Is that what you're doing? That is exactly right. And then, okay. So then what are you looking for from the person? You just want them to tell you what they feel or how it feels? Like what kind of responses are you looking for from the person? Sometimes both. Sometimes we're looking for a qualitative response when we're in the pilot stage of an experiment. Sometimes we are looking for statistics because a lot of the sensations that we're testing for are not obvious. They are very subtle. We right. had a paper early on where we were trying to tell the difference between a surface that had oxygen and hydrogen groups attached to it, an OH group right. uh, versus a CF3 group. And just that last group at the closest surface, we wanted to see if by differences in molecular structure at the surface, if the human subjects could tell the difference. Now, as you can imagine, that's a hard thing to tell, right? Yes. Because they're atoms. But the people could do it, but we needed enough participants to get solid statistics. Wow. Okay. So hopefully I am still following you, Dr. <laughs> Dare. Now, is it all human touch that is doing the experimenting? And I guess what I mean to ask is, do you also have technology that you are having the humans use? Because I can't imagine 
you know, if let's say somebody just has rough hands and they don't feel as well, <laughs> well, sorry, kid, you're not going to be a nano engineer anytime soon. <laughs> what types of technology are you using to help this along? Yeah. So we often corroborate or fail to corroborate our human <laughs> subject data using what's called a surface force apparatus, so, which is basically okay. a fake finger. So we make okay. a we make a fake finger and we generate a friction force in a plot. So we okay. plot the friction okay. force. And for example, we did it, we do these experiments where we say, can you tell the difference between surface A and surface B? Right. And in surf this case of surface A, you run the fake finger across surface A, and it gives you, say, a jagged plot. Right. And then you run it over surface B and it gives you another jagged plot. It's the exact same plot. Well, they're exactly the same from a tactile perspective. So we okay. would say that those could, you couldn't tell the difference between those based on the friction force. Right. But say you change your loading force, like how hard you press down with the fake finger. Oh. And then you get a jagged curve in one case and you get a smooth curve in the other. And that tells us that under those conditions, a human should be able to tell the difference. So then okay. do you give your humans this information and have them push at a different, you know, strength and friction and all this kind of stuff? The most important finding of that particular study is that you don't have to tell them. The human brain automatically changes its tactile interaction with an object ah. in order to get the most information from it possible. So that if the task is to differentiate this object from this object, right. then we automatically home in on the right combination of pressure and squeezing force and scanning velocity with our fingertips wow. that allow us to make the discrimination. So you're saying the human brain is pretty stinking cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what, it takes, that's what he said. It takes our robot, <laughs> it takes our robot hand like an hour to do this. Oh, wow. Okay. There you go. Okay. So I have a better understanding now, and hopefully our listeners do as well. What, and earlier on when you were mentioning the applications, you mentioned quite a list of applications. Is there one that's like your top priority, one that you are working on or close to developing a product or a, or a process with? We have a new collaboration with a group in the Netherlands that wants to convert the works of Van Gogh into tactile oh. format. No oh, kidding. Wow. And I'm not going to say that this is the farthest along project because it's <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> okay. There are... Things like tactile museums for the blind. I think yes. we've seen we've sure. seen these. And the object in most of those cases is to mimic visual objects. So say that I'm feeling around my head and I say, these are the glasses, these are my ears, this is right. my nose, and so on. And that's kind of what tactile art, you know, for most of the history of tactile art has been. But if you can have reconfigurable materials or you can generate sensations that you can't get with off-the-shelf materials, even if it's a material that's unchanging, right. then you have access 
to gamuts of emotion, to ranges of emotion and other sensations that you wouldn't get with like concrete, rubber, and so on. Right. So, there's a cool twist to this project. We are using a type of human subject called a synesthete or that has synesthesia where their sense of touch is so closely linked to their visual sense Mm -hmm. that they actually touch color. So, they touch an object and they will will see a color. And the cool thing is all of us are synesthetes to some extent, but it doesn't always arise to the level of conscious experience. So, the idea is to use the synesthetic population to develop the Rosetta Stone or the design rules for a new form of tactile artwork. That's fabulous. I have a friend who's a synesthetic and she's also an illustrator and can see, like, I don't know, there's something about me who I'm not, but I look at her images and her illustrations and for me, they're just so vivid. Right. And I think that's because she has that ability to see colors as she paints and as she works with different medium and materials. That is so cool. I'm really excited about it. And we got the Dutch government to give us a grant for it. Which is even better, right? (laughs) Congratulations. Yes, congratulations. Now, talk about just the idea of when I introduced you as a professor of nanoengineering, like that already has so many cool points <laughs> that you could really just talk about whatever you wanted to during the show. <laughs> cool to and some Dr. people. <laughs> da- and Dr. Darren's already yeah. going to be a cool guy. Yeah. But the fact that you were that one project, you picked out a project that wasn't even on your earlier list yeah. of all the things that you can use wow. nanoengineering for. And you were just describing something that is going to create a whole new future. And I think, especially our younger listeners, I think that really energizes them, gets them excited and wants that they want to start learning more and getting a feel for this. Are there ways that younger listeners or even just family listeners can get involved with understanding nanoengineering or even just the whole idea of nano itself? The best place to be honest is internet video. You know, <laughs> okay. YouTube has everything these days. And, you know, I don't want to just advertise for, you know, my, my favorite channels, but I'm, I'm on all the time. I'm constantly learning new nanotechnology. You can visit my YouTube channel. I have some stuff. Which is what? Go ahead, tell us. (laughs) Oh, it's just, well, my YouTube channel is just my name, Darren underscore Lapomi. And then I have podcasts, uh, molecular podcasting and ideas in STEM ed, ideas in STEM education, which is an interview show, which Jennifer, you have been a recent guest. I uh, was, yes, it was a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah. And there are some great books at your local library as well. Go to the university library. And the best thing about the university library or any nonfiction section of your, your local, mm-hmm. your local library as well is if you get the Dewey decimal number for a book on nanotechnology, you're going to look to the left and to the right and find yes. 25 other books on either side that is better than the one that you found on the <laughs> internet. And that is, that is what we are, you know, 
missing from from doing all of our research on the internet is the ability just to come home with a pile of books. Yeah. So nice. yeah, go to go to your university library, look up nanotechnology, and have fun. Well, and that's it's changed so much because the book I wrote is probably five or six years old, and back then even though that seems so short, there wasn't a lot. And now it feel like nanotechnology has really exploded and you find it kind of everywhere. I mean, my book was about nanotechnology and sports and we could have a whole conversation about all of that and what they use in all the different kinds of sports. But it's a really amazing, amazing field. So now I'm going to ask you the question I usually ask at the beginning. How did you get into this? Like as a kid, were you one of those kids who always was looking at little tiny things through a microscope, or did you just kind of find it accidentally? I've always been interested in science. I don't know where it started. My, <laughs> my mom is an artist and a retired librarian. My dad was a tailor. His parents spoke Sicilian at home and he inherited his dad's tailor business and wow. that's what he did. And so I guess working with relatively small objects with one's hands, <laughs> needles yes. and thread and, sure. and so yeah. forth, that, that certainly looks like something that I, that I did when I was in grad school. But I was interested in Star Trek and Star Wars and I just Yeah, you fit in here. Okay. <laughs> We're and, your and people. I, <laughs> and and I always felt that that science and engineering was the only legitimate route to magic. That okay. to make these things happen, one had to learn the rules of nature and learn yeah. how to manipulate them. And it didn't it didn't occur to me until later that much of science was about like bookkeeping and doing careful research and so on. <laughs> <laughs> but now I have grad students and postdocs and they're happy to do it for a few years. And then afterwards, they'll, you know, they'll direct the younger generation. <laughs> sure. So, you know, it, everyone turns the crank. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Very good. Okay. So I want to take you to the complete opposite end of Jennifer's spectrum from where you started. You're still a young man. You're not going anywhere anytime soon. And you were working on something that we've already mentioned is changing the future. Is there a, you know, Star Trek-like project <laughs> that you have somewhere, not in the back, but maybe to the side of your mind that you would love to work on and see come to fruition? I would love for haptic biomaterials. So those are the materials that interact with the sense of touch. Yeah. I would love to see them incorporated in some kind of medical holodeck where oh, if wow. you needed a procedure or a palpation exam, I work with a lot of clinicians in, in head and neck cancer therapy who do a lot of exams of the swallowing structures, but there just aren't that many people with the expertise. If you could do stuff like that remotely wow. in a totally right. realistic setting or do training on holographic patients, right? But actually feel the way that feel the way that their skin feels against your finger fingertips, that would be the crest. That would be the hilltop wow. of, Medical uh, of this. Medical holodeck sounds yeah. fabulous. Oh, I mean, there's so, what I love about what you do is there's so many different applications. I imagine that you encourage your students to find their own path, right? Like what, what excites them about what kind of application can they come up with that you haven't even thought of, or maybe nobody else has thought of? 
So in, for example, I have a, a postdoc who is a, a student who has already gotten their PhD and right. stayed in, in school to further their education who wanted to do mechanobiology. And Ooh. this student is a mechanical engineer, but wanted to learn about how mechanical forces affect processes in the body. And so we wow. teamed up wow. with Ardem Pataputian, who's a scientist at Scripps Research, which is a yep. little bit up uh, the coast from UC San Diego. And Ardem's group, Professor Pataputian's lab, won the Nobel Prize last year for the discovery of wow. the little protein in, in the nerve endings that mediate the sense of touch. So you press on something and wow. some ions go into the cell and then a chain reaction happens and something called an action potential reaches the brain and then you feel something. And so that protein is like the gatekeeper to the whole sense of touch and to, in fact, many of Whoa. the mechanical processes you feel inside your body, like your lungs inflating, the feeling of having to use the restroom, the feeling sure. of even perhaps feeling sleepy, stuff like that. So this mechanical engineering postdoc wow. is actually building tools with my group and with Professor Pataputian's group to learn how these proteins and cells work. So we're going sort of from the cell cellular scale all the way up to the psychology scale using material science as the, the thing that we have control over to manipulate wow. these properties. That sounds amazing. That sounds I, very, very cool and sounds very futuristic. Yeah. Well, maybe not so much. I mean, right? If you if you found the protein key. Just sounds futuristic. It's, you know, for those of us that are not in that, that postdoc <laughs> working in your lab with you, <laughs> working on these cool projects with you, it sounds like, you know, you don't necessarily hear these on the radio in between Christmas songs. Or, you know, as you're scrolling through Instagram or TikTok, you don't necessarily get these headlines. But this also sounds, and you've mentioned it a couple of times that you work with other folks, this also sounds, and we've heard this a lot as well, very collaborative. Yes. Like you are, whatever, whatever it is that you are going to be working on, it won't be Dr. Darren and Dr. Darren's lab alone. It will be some sort of a collaboration. That's right. What I found in my almost 11 years of being a professor is that the farther apart your core expertise, so even farther apart than, you know, chemistry and physics, say, take yes. materials engineering and psychology, the farther <laughs> okay. apart they are, That's pretty the, far. the more knowledge there is to be created in, in between. The biggest challenge is finding some people who will take the steps needed yes. to learn each other's language so that you can yes. have a productive conversation and learn where the difficulties are in somebody else's field so that you can use your knowledge to help them learn something in their field. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's when I speak to students about science with my books, I say, to me, science by definition is diverse. Because the more diverse people, diverse thinking that you have, the, the better the science is. The scientific fields are historical yeah. accidents, right? It's just yes. by, by <laughs> accident. 
I also work in my chemical engineering program is also located in this department. And that was that field arose because they needed to get oil and gas out of the ground. And now uh. it's now it's a million other things. And each field often has a core that's just kind of a historical accident. And then you can't recognize <laughs> that there is space between these columns where there's no field. No one's getting tenure in the space between yes. chemistry and psychology, right? I guess maybe psych psych psychiatric medication, but, but that's, <laughs> that's different, right? It's, it's not exactly what I, what I mean. <laughs> yes. Wow. This is so great. This has been such an amazing conversation. We are going to have to have you back, Dr. Dr. Darren, because I want to ask you about the other two things, major things you yes. do in your lab. But oh, now we to. come to the part in the show where we ask you to give our listeners a challenge. And I'm very curious yeah, this is to hear what your challenge is going to be for our listeners. Here goes. With your eyes closed, how is it that you can feel the differences between objects? Ooh. Plastic from metal, oh. rock from paper, be as specific as possible. What properties of the material are you feeling? Oh, that is I, very specific. But I like that. And yes. you know what might be cool is like to do it with a friend, right? See if they're feeling the same thing you're feeling, right? Or talk about different levels. I think mm -hmm. that would be fun. That's the scientist in me. Let's compare and contrast, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I like this. And there are so many different things that, to feel. Yes. As you mentioned earlier, just, hey, look around your room. And there are so many different things to feel. And I love the specificity of how you instructed them to do it. Yes. This is going to be interesting. Well, this has been an awesome talk. I really enjoyed talking to you today, Dr. Very Darren. Much. Thank you so much for being on Solve for Kids. My pleasure. What an absolutely fascinating conversation. We could have kept this episode going yes. for another hour, Jen. <laughs> oh my goodness. Definitely. And Dr. Darren just kept it going for me because his challenge, I am totally doing this all over the house. With my eyes closed, how do we feel the difference in objects? This is something all of us intrinsically know, but when's yeah. the last time you actually paid attention to feeling all of the different properties in what makes something up, whether it's the materials, the yeah. temperature, the softness or hardness? Jen, are you gonna be doing this? Yes, and you know, I kind of remember doing this a long time ago in science class. The teacher has all of these things and you have to, yes. you know, they're hidden and you have to stick your hand in them. And of course, they always gave you like goo, the slime stuff. Sure. And some but, you know, I love the idea of the different materials. So the question is, could you tell the difference between, you know, like fiberglass and plastic or, you know, there's so many more materials these days that I think it might be a little bit harder than we think. Yes. To figure out Once exactly you're blindfolded and your eyes are yeah, closed, you can't see. Is. I definitely I think this. it's going to be harder. And I love learning how robots are getting this same sense because we don't think of that as robots. Yeah. I mean, this is another thing that just, again, blows me away. And I say this all the time. Humans are so stinking amazing. I mean, Absolutely. The fact that we can figure out how to have a robot sense and feel, and the fact that they're 
discovering proteins in our own body that help us figure out all of their senses. I mean, it's just, it's so amazing. So we want all of you guys to go and do this and share with us what you found, especially if you kind of got it wrong or if you were the person that got them all right. So make sure you let us know. You can tag us on social media. We are at KidSolve at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget to check out our website, SolveItForKids.com, where we have a page for every episode, including this one, with book recommendations at the bottom. So we'll give you more information about nanotechnology, which is very, very cool. And you should totally learn about it. Until next time, stay very curious with everything that you can feel in your environment. You'll hear Jen and Jeff next time on Solve It For Kids. Kids. Thank you.